code. Hi, I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic to entertain myself by learning more and to uh, present a, a broad range of really fabulous information that I feel is important to get out to the horse world. Many of my speakers are people that are in research, science, and um, kind of live in their labs. And so they're not known to the general public, but their information is really important to the average horse owner. So this is number, I think it's 69, webinar number 69. And tonight my guest is Dr. Raquel Butler from Australia. Um, and it's, I'm just so thrilled to have you. This is just, uh, just fabulous. Um, so Dr. Butler, please um, give us a brief introduction, just your background and, and um, so that people get to meet you a little bit. Yeah, thanks Wendy. I'm yeah, really excited to be here as well. Um, yeah, I'm um, a veterinarian from Australia. I've um, been doing, I guess, body work for about, I don't know, eight or 10 years. Um, I started with muscle release therapy and um, then have gone on to study lots of different therapies, uh, including biomechanical medicine, which is chiropractic, osteopaths um, and rehab. So I had my own business, Integrated Veterinary Therapeutics, but I now work at Charles Sturt University in Wagga, um, teaching equine science, where I teach um, injury, disease and rehab and locomotion and the equine athletes, so exercise physiology kind of um, things about horses. And yeah, I'm really passionate about educating people and um, and passionate about rehabilitation and um, br bridging the gap between vets and other professionals so that we can actually all work together for the best interest of the horse. So in so, Australia, do they have, um, you're teaching at the university, so you're teaching people rehab, but are they, are they veterinarians that you're teaching or is this just general uh, public who is taking the courses at Charles Strutt? Yeah, so it's a Bachelor of Equine Science, so it's um, for anyone. So the um, some of our students go into vet, um, but, you know, hopefully in the future, as vets become a bit more progressive, they can become like rehabilitation um, technicians or assistants. That would be kind of my ultimate goal for it. Um, yeah, so just general kind of equine, I guess, people who are interested in in horses. And so in Australia, do you have actually, like, um, in, in Europe, they have a degree for animal, animal physical therapy. And in the United States now, we have the certain SERP training, the one at UT Tennessee and the one in Florida, for people to become rehab, uh, what is it, uh, see, our technicians and practitioners, uh, equine rehab. Do you have something equivalent to that or something more like the European model in Australia? Um, yeah, I think it's something that we're kind of lacking, to be honest. Um, there's probably more in dogs. So there's more availability in dogs and there's lots of kind of bodywork courses and all of those sorts of things. But I think in terms of, of rehabilitation itself, we need to actually grow in that area. Um, and so that's so an like area that we're hoping to. Like they go through and get their bachelor's degree, but it's not like they come up as a rehab practitioner no but that's our aim in the future yeah yeah I, I'm more and more I think this is where we're headed and and I think that's a really integrated part or necessary part of a team in rehabbing a horse 
um, because you've got the veterinarians making diagnosis and you've got the horse owner trying to follow a protocol, but they might not be trained in the techniques that the horse needs. And so yeah. this, this rehab technician or rehab practitioner really is the thing I think that's going to fill that gap. Yeah. And also like fill the gap even between a body worker and the owner, like, you know, for somebody to then the, the body worker comes and does or the osteo chiro, you know, acupuncturist comes and does their treatment, but then having, um, another support person to support them during the rehab process, um, and help them get their exercises right. And all of that would be so beneficial. Right. So um, just one more question before we go on. In this country, to do acupuncture or chiropractics, you have to be a veterinarian. Is that different in Australia? No. So um, there are other acupuncture courses where you don't have to be a vet. And different states, the difficulty in Australia is different states have different legislations. Um, in Australia, to do, uh, in some states, you actually need to be a vet to be do chiropractic and osteopathy because we're actually investigating all the legislations at the moment um in we have a course that's a graduate um, diploma of animal biomechanical medicine i'm the president of that association and that's um teaching veterinarians human osteos and human chiros um animal you know techniques right. um and so that's kind of the highest qualification that we have in australia for that so so you're, you're kind of in the same situation as we are here in the states in that we have we haven't um matured enough i think is probably the best word of moving into this concept of rehab and that that sort of integration between the diagnosis and the veterinarian and the practitioners and the horse owners so that the the plan is followed through so the horse rehabs correctly yeah so like as you know in that diploma we teach all of that so as practitioners we have all of that but then the time we're time poor because generally you're super busy and to then you still need that rehab technician right it'd right. still be so beneficial to us yeah yeah to have that that person that can really kind of um in a way oversee the whole process and make sure everything all the pieces are fitting yeah together. be the connecting person yeah because that's well, what that's what i do but it'd be great to have someone else to help me do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And hopefully, you know, that's one of the goals I think for, for all of these webinars is that we start to see what the needs are and we can start kind of generating the public knowledge of what the needs are so that we can start to grow in that direction. Because if you don't realize there's a need, you can't grow in that direction. Yeah. And I think the push really needs to come from the horse owners, you know, that that's what they want as well, mm -hmm. because I've had vets tell me, oh, there's not, not a demand for that. Well, in, in the industry where I am, there is. So we need horse owners to be kind of telling the vets, like, there is a demand for this. Like, we want to, you know, rehabilitate our horses. We want to improve our performance of our horses and understand all the stuff we're dealing with within our horses because they all have issues. And right. it's, a matter of, it's a matter of kind of gaining the knowledge to manage them. Right. And in the human world, you know, we've known this for a long time and we look at an athlete and we go, all right, you need this program for training, for conditioning, for rehab if you have an injury so that you can be peaking in your performance at the right time. And while we understand conditioning is important and the idea of peaking performance, at least in certain parts of the industry, like the endurance riders and the event riders, and um, we, it, we need more of that understanding of, of physical therapy and rehab and maintenance and good maintenance in the horse population in general and the owner population 
um, starting from the foot up. I mean, it's the, yep. the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more with that. No, it's making out of all of this. We'll, we'll see that starting to happen. That would be awesome. Yeah, I think it is. It's just, um, it's just keeping that ball rolling. Yep. Yeah. All right. Um, so if anyone has a question for Dr. Butler, please just put it in the chat or Q&A. Um, that's the best way to handle the questions. And then as she's going through her lecture, if I see an appropriate place to, to interrupt and ask her that question, I'll do so. Um, and yeah, I can keep an eye on them as well. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. You ready? Yep. Let's go. Uh, share my screen again. Okay. okay. Everything's okay on Facebook. Yeah, I'm just get the videos up. Yep. Okay, and the chat. Luckily, I have three screens, so. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, uh, very helpful. I can see everything. Okay. Right to go. Yep. Hang on. So today, um, I'm talking about stretching and. Uh, I guess mostly about fascia, but also just about the influence of stretching on the body. Go to the next slide. Uh, so the importance of stretching for fascia, muscles and bones, the different types of stretching that we could do with our horses and some examples of stretches. So I've got a lot of videos at the end of um, my pony doing some stretches and also, you know, little examples of what, what's right and what's wrong as well. So fascia, there's already been some pretty, um, uh, amazing talks on fascia and so hopefully you've got to kind of see some of those because I mean you know there's congresses on fascia so you could talk literally all day about it um, and it's such an amazing structure that really as a vet I learned it was just something you cut through to do surgery and uh, it wasn't that important and obviously becoming um you know, osteochiro and I've done some craniosacral and um, taping especially uh, really highlights the importance of fascia. So I just put these images here. I've done a lot of dissections um, with horses with Sharon May Davis and on my own. And um, what I'm really noticed in the dissections is the differences in the fascia in terms of when you're kind of um, cutting through it and how different healthy fascia is to restricted fascia. So, for example, here, this was an old horse with lots of um, issues, and you can see the kind of haphazard nature of the fascia between the muscle layers and how you've got denser areas and then thinner areas. And when it's kind of really healthy, it just peels away quite easily but when it's really unhealthy it's like you really have to slice an incise through it to get, to get through it it'll be really um, stuck and the muscles will be really stuck together um, and so you can understand that if that you know in a live horse um, how that's going to restrict motion within the muscles uh, and this one on the right here I assume everyone can see my arrow yes yep um, we've got just the skin coming away from the underlying muscle. And here again, you can see different kind of qualities of the fascia. So here we've got uh, a lot of adhesions and a real tightening of it. And then here is where it's kind of, you know, easier to come away. So it's a healthier kind of area. Um, and the same here, it's 
not too bad. So the important thing to realize is that fascia envelopes all of the muscles, all of the organs, uh, all of the nerves and all of the bones. So it's a continuous layer throughout the whole body. And so when we come to kind of stretching, whatever we're working on, just because we're working on one particular stretching the forelimb doesn't mean we're not having an influence on the hind limb, hind limb through our stretches. And so we need to really keep that in mind when we're stretching our horses, that it's not in isolation. Um, so there's been um, Pamela Blades, Equibaga, I never know how to say it. Yep. But um, she gave me some permission to use these in Equitana. And so I've just put She'll them in. That's tomorrow night. Or tomorrow. Oh, awesome. Well, she'll probably talk about all of these fascial lines because, yeah, she's done an amazing book um, on the fascial lines. And I've just put a couple in here. Um, I've also done a, a clinic with Ricky Schultz. Um, on fascial lines and treating fascial lines, which is really amazing. Um, but I think the important thing to, to realize from this image is how, you know, we've got a connection from uh, the back of the eye in the temporal fascia and or underneath the TMJ all the way, um, you know, coming from the hind limb. So all the way from that hind foot. So if you're doing a lateral stretch of the neck up here, you've got to, you know, think about the effect that you're having on the rest of the body um, through, and this is just one of the lines. There's been, I think it's 13 lines that have been kind of recognized at the moment. So. I happen to have her book right here. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember how many she talks about in her book. Um, this image here, well, when just having a look at that, is the um, having a look at the lateral lines. And so, you know, there's superficial lines, there's deep lines, um, and that's the same with the, the lateral lines. There's actually a superficial lateral line and a deep lateral line. And we're also influencing deeper structures by influencing superficial structures. So you can have an influence uh, on those deeper structures through... Um, stretching or or whatever you might be doing with the horse I think it's 10 but don't don't quote me I'm just quickly breezing through it might be 10 in the book but I'm pretty sure when I did it with Ricky we were up to 13 okay because she yeah there's a few Maybe more added I'll have to have on yes <laughs> yeah definitely um uh, actually, I'll just go back. So a couple of lines I just didn't have the images, just didn't get to get the images for, but there's the um, lines kind of coming down the back of the limb. So we're stretching this line when we take the leg forward. And then there's a, um, so that's called the uh, retraction line. And then the protraction line, we're stretching when we take the leg back. So um, Ricky Schultz within her paper defines these lines, I think. Um, some of it was, is even newer than the paper now. Um, but these lines are really important when we're, when we're stretching, but they're really important in motion of the forelimb. Um, and then we also look at the abduction and adduction lines, which come down the outside of the limb, um, and then through the pecs and underneath. So there's, um, when we're looking at our stretches, we're looking at these fascial lines really, as well as the muscles that are, that are within those lines. So um, how does fascia kind of respond to exercise and training? And I think, you know, there's still a lot for us to learn uh, in this area. 
and you know, I think we can really influence this area though by how we train our horses and how we manage our horses amongst their training. So fascia will kind of adjust to meet demand. So if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, the fascia will become really stiff. And if you're just constantly kind of working in the same um, way every time, then you can't expect your horse to comfortably be able to do you know, say you just uh, do dressage in the paddock all the time and then you want to go do um, cross-country course, like you can't expect the fascia to be okay with that because it's, it's in kind of a fixed way of going. Um, so, and the other thing is when it's immobilised, so when it is in a fixed position all the time, you're doing the same thing day in, day out, then that immobilisation um, will restrict other movements and so you'll get a, a lack of hydration so it'll affect hydration of the static of the fascia um, it'll alter the actual collagen fiber alignment within the fascia so the the internal structures it'll lose uh, elasticity there will um, become adhesions within the fascia and then you end up having an influence on the muscle cells and then this is how we end up, you know, you, you get an injury and you think, oh, I don't know how that happened or it was just a traumatic incident, but probably there was so many things that have been setting up to end up with that injury. So immobilization doesn't just mean stuck in the stable. Immobilization means stuck in a certain way of working as well. So, um, um would an example be like years and years ago, I went to what, something called um, Soundfest and all the farriers that were there decided to play golf on the day off. And mm -hmm. farriers is a very linear movement up and down and golfing is a twisting motion. And when they all came back, they were all crippled. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that would be a good example. Okay. Yeah, because their fascia had basically patterned. It moved in, in one line, like dorsoventral, really. Yep. And so, yeah, going and doing like the lateral lines <laughs> and the, um, uh, and I've just forgotten the other line, but uh, yeah, like those lines would be totally restricted because they haven't been used. So, and so like, like a racehorse that's been on the track for years that's been doing the same kind of repetitive training and then we try to turn them around and make them into a, a jumper or a dressage horse are we then actually having to to recognize that fascia has to catch up with the change of exercise as well not just yeah. simply the the training but we have to allow the body time to to reorganize into a different movement pattern yeah absolutely we've got to show the body also um what those new movement patterns are as well um so okay, <laughs> no i don't know i need to do my facebook off um so now there's other peeping uh where was i yeah so we need to show them different ways of moving because they have been in a fairly linear motion uh some resources you know do get physio body work and stretching but a lot don't mm -hmm. um so therefore yeah you've got a very set picture i guess or set structure that to deal with so then when we want to take it from uh you know just go show jumping in a, in a few weeks or even if a couple of months um we potentially haven't retrained and re-established fascial pathways neural pathways um strength 
proprioception, like all of those things are so important. So yeah, I see a um, kind of a question there from Bob. So does diversification of exercise or movement is advised? Yes, that's what I'm going to talk about. So absolutely, I think we get really stuck in our competition. You know, we're dressage horses or we're show jumping horses. And so you do a lot of show jumping or you do a lot of dressage or or you, you know, the racehorses do a lot of going around the track. And I think that's probably the biggest mistake that we make in terms of, of fascia. The other thing that we have to take into consideration is age. So the older that the horse is, it's going to take a bit longer. It's going to be a bit harder. Their collagen isn't as, um, as, as good quality. And so things don't respond as quickly, they have reduced uh, hyaluronic acid within their kind of collagen. And yeah, it's like, you know, we get wrinkles as we get older um, and it's harder to get rid of them. So if you looked after your fascia from a younger age, you might have less wrinkles. <laughs> so we've got to allow for that as, um, you know, as, <laughs> as we're retraining these horses. Um, and then we've got to consider, well, how long does fascia take to renew? And in humans, they say it can take six months to two years. So we don't know in horses how long it takes. And I guess it really depends on the forces that are being placed upon it and all of the other factors like hoof balance, diet, um, I was gonna and then the type of training. And the quality of fascia. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah that I think movement probably plays a bigger role, but I think nutrition is definitely really important for fascia as well. Um, and then just the transmission of uh, forces through that fascia. So how it's going to respond is going to depend, like you said, so you've got the farriers that are always doing the same kind of motion. So their, you know, ventral and dorsal lines are going to be, transmitting forces in a certain way but then you go and be, do golf and then the forces have all of a sudden changed and the body's like uh like we don't know how to transmit those forces because we're kind of used to this force so you've got to think about that the transmission of forces when you change um exercises with the horse um I was just looking at another question. So I routinely gently stretch my horse's front legs before I ride. She hasn't done it for a long time, but she used to do a cat stretch. Yep. Wondering what, why she was doing that felt good. Yeah. I, I believe when they kind of do that, it feels good. Uh, and that they're adding to the stretch themselves and built and kind of building on that stretch. So you've kind of shown them and then they're like, Oh yeah, that feels good. Uh, I think when they kind of stop doing that, that, that there's potentially maybe a restriction there. And so it's not so comfortable anymore, or maybe the transmission through the fascia is not happening the way it was anymore to stimulate that response. Um, so yeah, I think it's important. That's something I'm going to talk about later as well. It's really important to note, okay, well, she used to do that and now she doesn't. And maybe ask the question why, you know, that might have, have changed and start to investigate that a bit more. So, yeah, as we kind of mentioned before, um, the 
key to kind of exercising fascia is variation. So it's not really about stretching your fascia every day. Uh, it's about it's about the variation in the movements that you do to keep your fascia healthy. So it's also we have to recognize the that micro movements are. Um, can have a huge effect on fascia and it doesn't always have to be big things happening. And even myself, I get caught up in this with training. You know, I do more trotting or more, um, you know, poles or something, but really there's a lot of benefit in doing tiny little movements like little thoracic lifts and um, things like that, that can actually have bigger influence on the fascia and, um, and improving those pathways. And as um, uh, I think Martina talked about, you know, how the transmission of fascia is three times as quick as the transmission of nerves. So we've also got to recognise how little things that we do are going to have big impacts on the fascia. Raquel, are you um, familiar with the Feldenkrais method? A little bit. Well, like it, I'm, yeah, I mean, I've, I, I'm a Feldenkrais practitioner and... You know, Dr. Feldenkrais always talked about the bones, but the hallmark of Feldenkrais is very small, gentle movements that, you know, that winds up with big changes in movement. But I'm wondering now, just from what you just said, if we're, if we're really not affecting the fascia hugely with the Feldenkrais method. I, I think so, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it's, it's that feedback through the fascia. Yeah. So... You know, by making those tiny little movements, you're allowing the body the time to to reprogram through the fascia. Yeah, right. I, Ava just said that also with the surefoot pads, you see a lot of these little micro movements um, that yep. result in big changes. Yeah, absolutely, and I and that's what I believe also is happening with the surefoot pads, mm -hmm. is that you're getting you're getting this feedback through the fascia that's then allowing the body to find um, a new way of balance, a new way of being that then can then be permanent depending on what other influences are stopping it from being permanent. Do you know what I mean? Like if they've got really bad hoof balance, well, some of the changes might stay, but you're going to lose some. So yeah, I think T-touches um, and uh, Masterson method. Yeah, I think they're all potentially working on this transmission through fascia. Um, and, uh, and that's what we're getting, you know, seeing some of the changes. And, and the thing is that when, when we're doing all this subtle stuff, we actually allow the body time. And in that time, it allows the fascia to rehydrate. And so I think that's probably more important than we um, also recognize. And maybe from a, neural feedback perspective but then also just from a, a fascial hydration perspective so um it's amazing how even breaks for the mentally make a huge difference so after they've done some hard work so is that actually some of that to do with the fascial transmission as opposed to just mental um changes uh able to discuss C6, C7 malformation in regards to fascia. To be honest, I think that's a whole different talk. Mm. Uh, and I'd really recommend that Sharon May Davis comes on and does that talk. Um, yeah, but, but I will talk about proprioception 
Maybe you could bit. give her a little plug for the, to come on the webinar because I've approached her, but I know she had um, uh, something going on. And so, um, but I'm going to come yeah. back to her and ask again. That's okay. I'm going to talk to her tonight on Zoom. So I will. Awesome. I will uh, <laughs> I'll put it in there. <laughs> great, great. Okay. So, um, and then we want to have a global approach to fascia. So, what these images are showing here is a, is a gazelle. Uh, and you know you're looking at the amazing kind of structure of their fascia and how they can it has such an amazing rebound um and and hydration but um and the huge i guess variation in movement within their fascia and um i've had the privilege of feeling um a little baby uh fetus of a of a deer and it was amazing to see the fascial connections that were happening uh, in a fetus. Mm -hmm. So yeah, quite, um, quite mind blowing there. So stretching for fascia. So there's lots of different types of stretches that we can do for fascia. It's not just a matter of doing the same stretches on your horse all the time. Um, so there's dynamic stretching and I'm going to explain this. We can do a much more slow and melting stretch. So for example, your myofascial release, but also you can do this, you know, with, with holding um, the limbs. But again, it's just important to allow that rehydration time, whether you're doing dynamic stretching or a slow and melting kind of more um, passive stretch. And I put this image in here because um, I think it's a good image to kind of remind people of what, what we're working on on a microscopic uh, level and how changeable uh, these fibres are. So they're moving around all the time. And if anyone hasn't seen Strolling Under the Skin, um, yeah, always recommend that you look at that because it really shows how these tubules within the fascia can move and um, also how important water is. Uh, in the function of the fascia. So these images are just a couple of images from dissections. Um, this is the thoracolumbar fascia, which goes along the back of the horse. And it's connecting to, uh, at this end, we have the superficial gluteal muscle. And at this end, we have the um, latissimus dorsi. And so this is going to the hip and this is going to the medial shoulder area. And, you know, I think uh, the important thing to notice here is like you can see through this fascia, yet when two people try to pull it apart, it is so strong that you cannot pull it apart. So, um, but it has, it has so much movement uh, in the live horse. And the, the thing is that we sit on this. And so... <laughs> when you know you ride the horse and we sit on this and if there's any problems with our riding or with the saddle then uh you know we're creating problems in the fascia and so we need to be addressing these problems and even if that's through just stretching your horse after you ride that can be really beneficial um and then this is actually the latissimus dorsi uh attachment coming down and going in towards the medial shoulder and as you can see it's a very fascial attachment and when we talk about origins and insertions um you know they're not just the muscle going into the bone it's often a fascial connection going in into that area and sometimes uh, as i think martina also 
talked about in her talk, like it can be a continuation into the bone. Like it's not an obvious, like here, here it starts and here it finishes. And that's why fascia is so important. So then when we talk about muscles and stretching, so obviously the fascia is surrounding the muscles. So we've talked about how important that, that structure is, but then talking about the muscles themselves underlying the, the fascia and they have origins and insertions, which is a simplified um, view of it because lots of them don't have clear origins and insertions and lots have multiple origins um, and, you know, might have like one insertion. So for example, the deep digital flexor, um, muscle has four origins and one insertion. So uh, we need to manage those origins to keep the insertion happy and make sure that they're working well because lots of times these are strange. Uh -oh. oh dear. It'll come back. And it's what, oh, God, sorry, my phone, it's, a, yep, sorry, can, can you That's hear okay, me? I thought it was my no, end. <laughs> no, so if someone tries to call me, I'm using a hotspot on my phone, and if they, and they always call me when I'm doing a Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if I just go out for a minute, it's just because my phone's ringing and it will stop. Okay. So sorry about that. No worries. Um, so oh, I've can just. I, can I just. You know, in, in old anatomy books, everybody talked about origin insertion and wanted to make it really simple and clean and it starts here and it ends there. But basically what you're saying is the lines are so incredibly blurred because the fascia is encasing the muscle throughout the muscle and throughout the bone that those are arbitrary in many ways definitions that, yeah. you know, I mean, we have, to, we have to have some way of talking about it, but what I think is really important is that we realize, okay, this is a discrete way of talking about a particular muscle, but we have to recognize just how interconnected everything is through this fascial system that is everywhere. Yeah, and I think that's anatomy, you know, like um, we often talk about separate areas or separate joints or the horse has a problem in its carpus or something, but what we have to remember is that it's a continuum <laughs> through the whole body and you can't have a problem in one joint and not be influencing the rest of the body because origins and insertions are so continuous. Uh, and I think we're always looking for simple ways to define things but the more I learn about horses and anatomy and biomechanics the more I realize that it's really not simple at all right. and um the less you know the old saying like the less you know um the easier it is and then the more you know the more you realize you don't know um definitely is the case with horses and anatomy uh, and and the connections um within it's very simple to see it as as, as joints and muscles and everything is separate, but yeah. um, that's so, not the way the horse is showing us. I've done um, five different courses with John Zahork who created Anatomy and Clay. And the beauty yep. of clay is you're building for the inside out so you can smear. <laughs> and when yeah. you're smearing, you get this idea that, okay, you might have this discrete muscle, but then you smear it into the rest of them and it's all that sort of fascial connection. Yep. Yeah. yeah, everything is smeared into each other, okay, <laughs> especially smeared into the bone. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, the important thing to recognise, I guess, though, with its attachments to bone is that it creates what's called an enthesis pattern on the bone. And so this is where the muscle is acting on the bone. And it's the interface between the bone and the tendon um, or the bone and the muscle. Like It's the interface between that attachment point and that these areas can easily become strained and create a lot of pain for the horse. And as they become strained, they actually become higher in, um, in their nerve uh, sensations and uh, they can become more nociceptive, so more pain related. And so these areas can actually cause a lot of pain and dysfunction for the horse. And we could easily spend a whole you know, lecture talking on in thesis patterns and the importance of managing these areas because I think these are the areas that we need to be looking at that potentially predispose to injury and breakdown and, and poor performance. So a common area is around the tuber coxae, around the, also known as the point of hip. Um, and it has, uh, I've added them up a few times, but it has like, I don't know, 10 or more muscles attaching to that one point. And so you've got all these muscles coming from the top, which are like your gluteals, your longissimus dorsi, which comes along the back. Um, and then underneath, you've got all of your abdominals attaching there. You've got a number of your uh, quadriceps. So your tensor fascia latte, the one that comes up the front from the stifle is attaching there. And so this one anchor point has all of these muscles coming off it, going in all different directions. And if one of these areas gets a bit restricted, then it's going to influence how that pelvis moves. And then all of a sudden, you've got a pelvis that's not moving properly. And so therefore, you're going to have an influence on the stifle joint, the abdominals, the psoas, the back, the back. Yeah, the, the sacrum, the sacroiliac, you know, from maybe one little area that, that maybe was the first area to get strained. Um, and so we see under dissection a lot. This is a damaged, unhappy one. And as you can see, because there's lots of holes uh, in the tissue and the tissue just, the muscle itself is not, uh, it didn't have structure. So it was kind of easily, you know, separated. Um, and there was a lot of uh, scar tissue around this area. And then we also find these little um, calcifications where they bled and you get the calcium left over from the bleeding. And so you get these little, sometimes you, could, you can often feel them on the live horse. They're these little um, like marbles around the, the especially around the tubercoxy uh, where it just indicates that there's been damage there before. Um, and this image here is the back of the scapula and it's just showing the, um, where the serratus, which is really important for your thoracic sling and holding the rib cage up between the front legs, uh, it's attachment point here on the back of the scapula. And so when we get these bones after you've removed the muscles and you feel them, sometimes the antheses are like got really sharp bits in them where, where, um, you know, the muscles have been damaged and they're really uncomfortable. And so if you imagine every now and again, that sharp bit like digs into part of the muscle, you can understand why a horse might say, oh, I don't want to do that movement. So, yeah, I think the more that we look after these areas, the, the better for the horse. 
Um, does massaging in a spoke pattern via grooming help to stimulate the fascia in the hip and shoulder area? Uh, yeah, I think any, it's just a different kind of um, fascial stimulation. So yeah, I think anything that you're kind of doing uh, around those areas is good for the fascia and it just really depends on the health of the fascia at the time as to how well it's going to respond like how long you spend there and what what underlying issues it's got as to the response that you get um, but yeah definitely that could be beneficial so the other thing to mention about muscles is um, within the the muscles they have a Golgi tendon organ which is basically within the uh, where the muscle uh, well it doesn't attach onto the tendon it just is a continuum with it with the tendon but in this area you've got this little organ um, which basically tells the muscle oh you've stretched too far um, that's all we're going to do or you know you can go a little bit further so it's like a little stretch um, kind of receptor within that tendon to tell it where it's at within its um, contraction and so it's providing the feedback um, to uh, yeah into the tendon to tell it whether it can continue to stretch or not so um, and obviously we want it to like stay. A, a little warning system that if we start to go too far and we're paying attention we're going to get a little signal that tells us oh wait a second either slow down or do less because we yep. Kind of a place where we can't really go and if you go further you're going to start causing damage yes and i think in horses obviously they don't have that ability to kind no. of stop <laughs> yeah to go oh that doesn't feel quite right whereas we in ourselves can say or like we can feel when we've gone beyond that point because you'll feel an uncomfortable pull or pain or something that's then a, a follow-on from that whereas the horse has already done the movement Right. Um, and so this is the importance of making sure that we have strength at stretch because the problem is that when, if they stretch too far and they don't have any strength there, the body also can't hold it. And so then you end up with injury. Mm. And so it's telling I can't stretch anymore, but it doesn't have the strength to hold it. And so then something has to give. And then there's also within the muscle fibers themselves, these muscle spindles, which are also um, controlling muscle, um, controlling the, sorry, detecting the changes in the length of the muscle. And so they're also sending messages back to the brain to say, yeah, you, you've stretched enough or not, you know, you can go a bit more. And so that influences the length uh, of the muscle and its rate of change. Um, and so again, it's important that these are all working really well for our horses to be strong um, when they're put, you know, in, in challenging situations such as jumping or galloping around the paddock even. Um, Can these get set to a certain place, even though the, the, the body may be capable of more, but the nervous system kind of gets set to us? I think of it like a, therm, a thermostat and it like says, this is it, I can't do more. But there are ways to reset it or is that something different? Um, I wonder if that's in the fascia. Oh, because you know how um, 
I, I always think of proprioception as kind of like it gets set to a certain place, but then when you make it, give it some other ideas, it goes, oh, I can do something else. But yeah, we have to challenge it with awareness, not demand. I think that's probably yes. about it. Um, to give it the idea, oh, you can do something different. But I didn't know if Golgi tendon, I'm trying to think of what. Um, I think Golgi tendon is more important at the end of the stretch. Oh, okay. Um, like as opposed to the 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 proprioceptive aspect of it like i would say the proprioceptive aspect of it is more your fascia okay yeah because and this is bringing up my my physiology from uh probably way before <laughs> yeah. i won't tell you how old my physiology is, okay <laughs> i do remember these structures <laughs> Yeah, yep. Yeah, I think, yeah, they bring back a fair few memories for people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I think that's that when we're retraining and reprogramming, I think a lot of that comes back to the fascia, uh, and and yeah, showing the body different ways of movement, like proprioceptively. I, th I really, yeah, I really think that's related to your fascia. Um, and then in the Feldenkrais method, the idea was that not to go to the end, not to go to a, not to push as far as you can go, but just do what's comfortable to allow the nervous system to shift so that you discover you can do more. So always keeping yeah. um, below the threshold of discomfort, essentially. Yes. And that's one of the things that I want to make sure that everyone from this talk goes home with, because yeah. I do believe too many times we stretch beyond the threshold. Ah, um, okay. And yeah so i think that's really really important staying under that threshold and i'm going to talk a bit more about that as as we go as well um so i think when you're taking it to that end point you are definitely getting feedback from the muscle spindles and the golgi tendon organ um and you're and you're training them to go further but in the initial retraining i think it's fascial and then this comes as a part of that um, the other thing to also be aware of is the reciprocal inhibition within the body. So if you're stretching like one muscle, like the opposing muscle will be relaxed. And so if you're like stretching your, um, your tricep, like your bicep is relaxed at the time, unless the horse is in brace, um, well, then you're not getting that relaxation in the other muscles that you should get. And I think that's also a problem um, with stretching, which we'll talk about in the videos more. Um, just found out my horse has mild kissing spines right where the saddle sits. Does tight fascia contribute to this condition? What can I do to make my horse more comfortable? Well, you'll gain some stuff from this today, I think. Uh, yes, I think that fascia is really important in kissing spines um, and that obviously saddle fit and poor posture and uh there's lots of contributing factors to that but i think if we routinely had stretching as part of our management of the horses it would help counteract some of the negative things that might influence and and cause kissing spines because for a start if you just did the basic chin between the knees stretch as part of your regular routine you would be opening those spinous processes all the time and so just that stretch alone, I believe, can make a huge difference to a horse. Okay, so the other thing to think about is postural muscles. And 
the fact that when we're stretching, we're also um, influencing and training these. And so there have been some studies to show an increase in um, the multifidi muscles, which are tiny little muscles that go across uh, the segments of the spine uh, and also in the neck, they go all the way along. And there's been you know, studies to show that they've increased in cross-sectional area with different movements and, and stretching. Um, and the longus coli is the one that's really important for your C6, C7 horses, which is under, it's the ventral neck muscle. Um, it's really important to give them stability. And the problem is with a lot of the ways that um, we work horses is that we're not actually strengthening these postural muscles, we're weakening them. And the other aspect of that is these postural muscles fatigue really easily. So they have a much finer control and they have um, a smaller number of muscle fibers to a nerve. And so they have that really fine control, but that means that they fatigue much more quickly. So if you, you know, imagine um, or doing yoga and standing on your, on one leg, for example, like you can get a lot more fatigued than going for a walk for two hours. So, you know, we have to really, or, or you're asked to do like some ballet dancing or something, you know, like holding that posture is almost impossible if you haven't trained those postural mus muscles. And you might do a fantastic the first time and then that's all you can do just once. Uh, and I know myself, I've had a lot of problems with my postural muscles and figuring out what works for them because I'm hyper flexible. And it's another thing I'll talk about with horses. And so when you're hyper flexible, the big movements don't help me. They make me sore. And so I have to do little movements and build my postural muscles up, which at the start were fatiguing so quickly. It was quite frustrating. You know, couldn't you feel like you're getting nowhere, but now that they're stronger, I can do more and not get sore. So these muscles are so important for, for our horses. And this is where I think our training, less is more rather and, than. And just to kind of reinforce your point there, multifidus is running along the spine on each side of the spine. So if we're sitting on our horses statically, we're actually fatiguing those muscles really rapidly. Um, you know, as a kid, my 4-H leader told me, my horse is not a couch. And yes. you know, when we're standing around, standing is the hardest thing for the horse to do bearing weight that you get off your horse. Absolutely. Um, and so when I see these clinics where people are sitting on their horse for eight hours or four hours or even two hours and they're standing watching somebody do something, that, that horse has to in, fatigue rapidly and then go into compensation and, and lock down into joints and strain lots of things because the very muscles that are designed to carry our weight aren't able to function anymore yeah yeah and then we're compressing the fascia there as well you know mm -hmm. by just sitting statically without giving that fascia any hydration breaks too right. so yeah we're fatiguing the postural muscles and then we're compressing the fascia and then and then you'll be sitting there for 15 minutes maybe half an hour and then you go and do your your bit in the clinic which might be like cantering or doing some fancy movement but your horse has just been sitting there everything getting fatigued for the last half an hour and then that's how we create injury right so yeah that's get please get off your horse whenever yeah. you're waiting um people always look at me weird when i get off my horse but i have a pony and 
she's not very big so I really have to look after her back yeah. more than more than any other horse but um and so um yeah there's a question after riding should we be massaging the area that's been compressed well it really depends on your riding um you know there's good good riding that actually your horse improves from and then there's you know maybe riding where where it's been a harder workout and so for example i noticed with my horse i've been doing more poles with her and then i noticed that like after the pole work you can really feel which muscles have been working and so that I've got to make sure that if I don't stretch her that day, I at least stretch her the next day or check how her muscles have recovered um, or do something else to make sure that she has enough breaks to rehydrate that fascia. So yeah, you could massage the area or just do some simple stretches. Um, and it doesn't have to be every time after you ride. If everything, if your saddle's fitting right and everything is good, then it could just be after you've done a harder kind of workout. Um, but stretching after riding is more important than stretching before. So if you're limited with time, always do it after. Mm. Um, and then, I've, I mean, Henry here is just on the pods. Um, I mean, I don't think he's necessarily training his postural muscles there. I just put it on because sometimes we can use the pads for postural muscles, depending what our aim is. Um, I think he was getting a really nice relief and his feet had been quite sore. Um, and he, he doesn't have the greatest postural muscles, but he was really enjoying um, standing on those pods. That was quite a, quite a few years ago. Yeah. So the importance of stretching. So the importance of stretching is to realise that there'll often be little micro things going on all the time that we don't see and we don't see it until the horse starts to compensate or, or other, or sometimes until the horse starts to misbehave or until we get breakdown. And so if we can deal with these things before they be, get to that point, um, by knowing your horse's body better, which I think stretching is a good way to do that, um, then we can hopefully prevent the pain and the muscle spasm and, you know, we can just have immediate recovery, basically. And so that's what we're aiming for. The problem is when you get injury and pain and then you don't get the appropriate treatment and then you get muscle spasm and then you get pain and then you get restrictions and then you get injury and then it's like before you know it, there's probably, you know, 20 injuries that you're not even aware of where there's been like little micro tears or maybe hundreds of injuries that we're not aware of um, that haven't then been given the opportunity to recover. So we're really looking for that, um, getting that recovery time. And then of course, it's always the, the one thing that, you know, well, my horse slipped or my horse hit a rail and the next thing he's blown a tendon, but really that was coming for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I think that's where observation is so important and, if you start to observe like, oh, my horse never hits a rail and then you did hit a rail, well, then you need to get on top of that straight away and figure out why your horse just hit a rail because, um, yeah, that could definitely lead to catastrophic injury. Uh, and horses don't just hit rails. Like there's got to be a reason and you shouldn't have to baby your horse through a show jumping around all the time and say, oh, I just didn't set him upright. Well, you know, they have proprioception and awareness too that if it's been trained properly, they shouldn't hit the rail. Like they don't want to hit the rail. 
it's not a pleasant thing for them but if they're not aware of where their leg is then they could hit the rail or if they can't physically lift their leg up then they could hit the rail so yeah I think um, if you look back even at catastrophic injuries where people have died I believe that they could have been prevented most of the time I believe there was signs within the horse that was showing that they were going to potentially lead to a rotational fall um, and I think the research is, is lacking in that area at the moment. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, hopefully it will come in the future because we, I just know from the horses that I feel how many issues they carry all the time. And so how can these accidents be accidents when we're taking these thoroughbreds off the track with their issues, putting them on these huge eventing courses and wondering why people get killed? So that's a whole nother, that's another story area to talk about. Point that, you know, and I, and I always bring this up to people is how often you, have you actually seen a horse hit its head? It's so rare. And if it does happen, there's something catastrophic. Um, my mare had a, had a calcified tendon with a club foot and the farrier was trimming the foot, but not addressing the tendon. And she was running downhill when it asked over tea kettle and concussed herself. You know, and long story short, uh, she wound up dying, not from the initial injury, but from a repeat and then uh, EPM. But my point being that horses are able to, if they're okay, they can get a leg out. And that's what they're designed to do is get a leg out. And if they don't get a leg out, there's really something seriously wrong that was missed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, that's the same with even when you're doing their feet as a farrier, you know, like if they're having trouble with that as well, there's, there's something wrong there. They're not being behaviorally difficult. Um, so I think we miss a lot because we put it down to behavior. And for me, behavior is an excuse. Um, because n nine times out of 10, I can find a reason for, for the behavior within the body. Um, and sometimes it's been a traumatic experience you know, that you might have to work with, but there's all, there always is a reason. Well, after doing Surefoot for over eight years now, I, I, what I keep finding over and over is that behavior problems are balance problems. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why the horse is exhibiting a behavior because when they're in balance, and that would include fascial balance, mental balance, physical balance, that, that the behaviors go away. Um, yeah, absolutely. We've been taught for years and years that it's just a horse that's being a butthead or difficult or just reprimand that horse and to ignore the signs that are actually they're screaming at us to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen that time and time again as well. So, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, um, they're, that's just their way to communicate to us. Yeah, they don't have a, other ways to do it. Yep. Um, yeah, so yeah uh, an imbalanced horse is an unhappy horse mm -hmm. um someone asked can i describe what a hydration break is it's really just stopping for a second like getting off your horse uh i went to a clinic a couple of weeks ago where we would do something hard and then our horses had a specific spot that we would go and stand and that was their break spot so in having that break it's a mental break but also it was a hydration break so um and in, even in stretching, you know, you do a little bit, you stop for a minute, allow the body to think about what's, well, it's not thinking about it. It's all the cells doing their thing right. in that moment of stillness. Yeah. Like stillness is 
there's a lot happening in that time sometimes and we see that with our treatments where we just have to step back and the horse is like in their processing mode for 15 20 30 minutes well there's a lot happening there we just can't see it so that's what a hydration break is like just stepping back letting the horse have its own time and that's for as long as the horse um, needs like they will guide you in that so the important thing is that rest is never a good option um, they've shown like this is just more exercise physiology but they've shown four to six weeks rest they'll have a significant decline in cardiovascular fitness so they're fine to have a few weeks off in terms of their cardiovascular fitness uh, and 12 weeks you've got it takes until bone strength declines so you've actually got a long time for those um, you know that a horse can have a rest but if they're immobile then um, that's when the problems start so horses that are stabled and I think all of our horses are immobile because we mostly keep them in smaller paddocks than what they were designed for and so what we consider as good mobility is still not probably good mobility for them um, They've also shown in human studies that you get a 40% decrease in muscle strength with four to six weeks bed rest. Now we probably have longer in horses, but um, they, in the humans, they lost bone mass. And even after six months of activity, they didn't retain, regain that bone mass. Um, so a period of immobility can have really long-term effects. And I think, People underestimate how long it takes to bring a horse back into work um, to make sure you get that strength back. You can't just pick up where you left off, um, even if they can do it. It doesn't mean that everything is happy um, and, and doing it. And are you finding now, like with a lot of injuries where we used to, like stall rest used to be prescribed, that they're finding that keeping them in some degree of motion, not running around, obviously, but some degree yep. of motion is actually a better way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And um, even if you can't walk them for some reason, even doing some passive range of motion within the stable is better than nothing. So moving their limbs through range of motion uh, can really help with their recovery and getting them walking. Most conditions that you rehab, the sooner that you can get them walking, the better, but it's controlled walking. It's not like we do six weeks box rest and then we do six weeks paddock rest that's just a perfect disaster waiting to happen. Like in your box, you need to be doing whatever you can. If you can walk, walk. If you can't walk, do something. Keep the horse moving somehow. Well, to... that's where I, I always recommend to people with the horses on stall rest to do surefoot with the good. Yes. Yep. And even, uh, yeah, like with whatever they will tolerate. So I've had cases like that as well, where I've said, given them the pads and said, yeah, do what you can do. Um, what, what the horse is happy to do to stimulate that circulation um, and just even if it's massage like just get them moving somehow uh, so they've shown a, ho a ho healthy horse in a four limb cast for seven weeks which then had eight weeks of forced exercise and I'm not don't know what that exercise was I can't remember but it didn't return to their pre-cast state um, of strength in that limb so that was a healthy limb that's not a um, a problem limb so there's lots of things you can even be doing when a hoof is in a cast and I mean that's a, again a whole nother discussion on rehab um, yeah and somebody that prevention is better than cure um, yes 
And that's really, that was where I got to who another webinar. Oh, it was with Dr. Taylor. It was the same thing. What can we do to prevent these things rather than trying to fix them afterward? Yeah, way, way better to prevent it from happening. Um, have a L5 displacement, partial rotation and spasm of the psoas intermittently for 10 weeks. And I have words to talk about it. If my horse had this type of injury, how can they tell us politely? Oh, sorry, I saw no answer. How can they tell us politely about it? Um, they do. It's just a matter of us listening, I think, uh, and knowing our horse, like what's a normal posture for our horse. Um, if you're stretching, you get to know what their capabilities are or aren't and what's their abilities to move. So like my pony, if she's not feeling right, she won't, she will change her own direction. Um, and so I could just say, oh, naughty pony, like go. And sometimes I do, you know, cause I'm just being a typical person. And I said, no, no, I want you to go in that direction. But she's telling me, no, it's uncomfortable. Can I just go in the comfortable direction? So I could easily say she's doing a behavioral thing there, but she's telling me. Uh, and the more you listen to them, the more they will communicate with you. And I had a client who had a horse that was highly kind of trained and the horse was trained to do everything. Uh, and I come along and she's like, yeah, like he could do all of this stuff. And I said, okay, but like, he's not comfortable, but he wasn't complaining. But then we gave him a voice and I started to, ask her to ask less and just do it within his capability, which was actually this much. And she was asking for this much, which like he was doing. And then all of a sudden he started communicating with her and he started like saying, Oh, that saddle doesn't fit. And like, you know, getting his head up and down when the saddle wasn't right and really started to show her. And she's like, Oh, okay. Like I never, I never knew that was possible. I thought that he just had to do what I told him to do. So once you start allowing, they will, they will um, con continue with that. Yeah. And it's quite amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. We so can the benefit. <laughs> I know. So, I, I feel like I'm going off on so many tangents. That's okay. It's um, <laughs> so the benefits of stretching, uh, I think we've already talked a lot about these, but proprioception, uh, improving flexibility and there is good and bad flexibility. Um, so we don't want to actually make the horse too flexible and not have strength because that also can lead to injury. Um, and that's where, like I have one of my thoroughbreds, he's very hypermobile. And so stretching wasn't really the best thing for him, like a bit of mobilization, but I didn't want to make him any more mobile. So it was more about proprioception and strength for him than and flexibility but making sure that we maintained the flexibility um, and that comes with kind of suppleness is it a good thing or a bad thing and it can be a bad thing uh, sometimes the horse that's too flexible and too supple is actually putting too much strain on the ligaments and tendons um, and the joints under too much pressure so you've got to have that balance of flexibility and strength which is going to be a bit different for every kind of horse depending on on their makeup like I have a really flexible horse and I have a really really stiff horse so they're not going to have the same regimes um it's been shown to improve uh performance and decrease risk of 
injury and improve range of motion. So these have been shown in studies. Um, and also to prevent muscle strain uh, and allow recovery of that and to get muscle stronger. So stretching does help to build strength itself as well. And I think we need to uh, recognize in our breeding now, we've been breeding for a certain kind of movement, but we're, we're breeding for those hypermobile horses. I'm thinking about a lot of the Gumby kind of dressage horses from Europe. And, um, you know, for years I've taught riders and when I get the, what would be the typical hunt seat rider, lean, long woman, super flexible. They have such a difficult time stabilizing without locking down. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. So they've either got to go one of two ways, don't they? Yeah. Like they've either they either can't stabilize and they're all over the shop, or they have to just lock everything into position to keep it all together. Which right. then means something at some point is going to give when you ask for that little bit more. Right, and I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of these performance horses now is that they either have to lock down or they're all over the place. And so they, they, we've lost that sort of stability that is necessary for performance to carry a rider, if you will. Yep, yep, yes. And yeah, and I think that, yeah, that needs to change through breeding, as you said, but also if you've got one of these horses, then the postural stabilization is even more important and, needs to be like a huge proportion of their work right you know so a lot of like active stuff that the horse is doing posturally to train those postural muscles and um lots of breaks but making sure that it's postural not strength you know like the strength will build but that posture has to be there first otherwise the the joints and the tendons and ligaments can't cope right so the importance of core strength, and this is a whole other area as well, and I'm just touching on it, but core strengthening is important for the stability of a horse's stance, posture, and ability for self-carriage in all disciplines. But when I talk about core strength, I also think what should come into that is um, thoracic freedom. So they need to have thoracic freedom and lift and also have core strength they have to go hand in hand you can have the strongest core in the world but still you know like well humans well you know horses like if it's built the wrong way then it's not going to be helping you know like think sake isn't what we're looking at it has to be within the function of the movement that's required yeah so dynamic strength rather than strength yeah stability strength um, and so just because the horse has tight, you see horses with these lines along their belly and people say, oh, their, their core is activating. No, their core is overactivating for some reason, some reason of discomfort somewhere else in the body. A strong core in the horse, you will see the abdomen is lifted, but it's not got these real tight lines mm. coming along there. Like that to me is a horse that's compensating for something else and actually hold bracing through their core rather than natural core strength. So obviously if what we just talked about before, if the horse has um, too much flexibility, core strength is going to be more important, but those postural muscles as well. If they have a weak or hollow top line or just a big belly, um, or they're coming back into ridden work or they've had a surgery of some description. Um, this core strength is, is going to be really important. And 
Um, the best core strength, actually it was back strength that I've seen are in the Konix uh, in Holland. And, you know, they had these big bellies, but they had these amazing abdominal muscles and this amazing psoas muscles and back muscles and their postural strength was phenomenal. Uh, and I think this is something that Sharon could talk about because of the way that they were feeding and browsing. And this is the stuff that we've lost in our horses. So I'll go and just talk a little bit about that now. So we're looking for um, strength at stretch to protect the body. So it's not just about the stretch, it's about the strength at stretch. Stretching will help elongate the muscle fibers um, and then strengthening will shorten and stiffen the fibers. And we want that strength, that stretch when the horse is at their maximal, especially in the hind limb, at their maximal propulsion, we want that to be strong at that point, not stretched and, you know, the hind, the hind limb's just kind of pushing but not actually pushing with strength. So can um, Shorefoot help to activate postural muscles? If so, do we know which ones? Um, I think that, well, Wendy will have her her opinion. I think that sometimes, but it's the way they're being used. And I think other times they're not activating the postural muscles. They're just getting a rebalancing and, a, and the fascia is re, um, rebalancing itself and the horse is not working hard. But if you leave them on there for too long uh, or a longer period of time, then you are getting more postural muscles coming into it. Do, is that do you agree well, with that? So what I find, you know, it's fascinating that my the very first horse I put on a pad, I timed it for 15 seconds and the horse completely changed. So I, I think it goes back to what you're saying about knowing your horse. And you're always safer doing a shorter duration in the beginning because you don't know how that's going to impact that horse. Um, but once you start to see your horse and how he responds on the pads, you can start to increase your duration um, with breaks, right? And that's that, that's that walk, take them off, take them for a walk, let them reset a little bit, let them have a little break, come back again, either the next day or, you know, in two minutes. But, um, I, I find that it's the on off and, and the more you talk about that rehydration rest, I've seen horses step off the pads and just hang there for 10 minutes and not want to move, but they're obviously yeah, processing something. So, you know, it's so individual, but in the beginning, especially, I think that by keeping it short, you're going to stay safe. Um, yeah. And I, I think in the beginning, it's more fascial responses. Unless you're going beyond, beyond that. Do you know what I mean? Like, like you say, if you leave them on them for too long, I think you are bringing the postural muscles into it when they're probably not ready. Yeah. To come into really, it. I think, you know, when I've seen a horse sway a little bit, I'll, I'll shorten the duration. But as I get to know the horse, I have one horse in Costa Rica. I can leave him on the pads for five to 10 minutes. He sways like crazy. He's totally fine. He's totally blissed out. He's been on the pads for years. Um, and yep. I use him as an example of extreme sway and I can stack him. I can put him on three pads in each front foot, two behind but that horse is okay because he's had the pads over time and we've seen the progression and we've seen how this horse responds and we know that this is okay because we've seen it. But when people- Yeah, and I also, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I'm just saying a lot of people starting out, they'll say, oh, I left my horse on for five minutes. That was short. And I'm like freaking out because- Yep. I, I wonder if with that horse, like you've already 
had such an input into his postural muscles that he's learned to use them in a different way and potentially activate them. And so then he can tolerate that because he actually has trained his postural muscles now because, because the pad showed him how. Right. And, and so it's always the, I'm always cautioning people in the beginning that if you don't, you don't know how your horse is going to respond and you can make them soar really fast. I've seen that. Yep. Um, you know, I had one horse, we did 20, we did 20 minutes one day, 20 minutes the next day, the third day, he's like, do not groom my stifle. I am really unhappy. And so you can't undo that soreness and you can't explain to the horse, I'm sorry, I put you on the pads too long. Cause at the time they're really happy and you know, they look content, but I always tell people you have to be a good parent and recognize we don't know how your horse is going to respond the next day. Yeah, we don't know all the stuff they've been compensating for. That's right. And holding and yeah. Going from my experience to my own body doing yoga, doing the stretch and then coming back to it again a minute later, we'll get a little more stretch. The body response is that quick to improve. Yeah, coming back to it even 30 seconds later, like yeah, you can get an increased stretch. And even if you haven't held it for very long at all, you get an increase. And that's what I'm going to talk about with my videos. Yeah. So somebody's asking, can surefoot activate postural muscles? And, and the, the question she goes on to say is which ones? Well, what you have to realize is any pad is going to have an effect on your horse and there is no prescribed pad for any individual horse. It really is uh, an experiment, but I always tell people you're, you're safer starting hard and moving into the softer, more unstable pads. Because if you start too unstable, A, you can freak them out because they don't know what's going on. But, but you want, it's just like people, you want to gradually increase the instability, not shock the system and make it have to compensate when it's not ready. Um, yeah. And the other aspect of that is, I mean, you can use the pads as the horses progress to train specific postural muscles. So, you know, say you had the horse's front legs on the, on the hard pads, you could do a really, really gentle with a rock and actually be training isometric contractions at the same time. So, but that, that's like advanced yes. yeah. kind of stuff, you know, yeah. and that's for knowing exactly what you want your outcome to be, not just doing it because you want to do it. And seeing how the horse responds to those two things separately, the wither rock off the pads and being on the pads. So it's always like, each technique, in my opinion, should be done in isolation first so the horse understands what's going on. And then yep. later, once you see the responses, you, the horse has some experience, you've seen some improvement, and we're going to talk more about that in your talk, then you can start to combine things. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, how long can they be on the pads during farrier work? Well, I think they usually tell you, like the horse... We'll also say you're going to use your harder pad. You're going to use your physio pad or your hard pad, which has less instability and a lot of support. That's right. That's exactly right. A lot of support. So, um, and to be honest, getting your feet done, get some for some horses, getting their feet done is so hard. Yes. That being on the pads is so much easier. That yeah, it's not a problem of how long because it's making the job easier. Right, and in you're that, in that situation, from foot to foot. So. Yeah. Um, uh, in my own experience, when I had surgery two years ago, it, I had a I had a long accident many years ago, and then I had a bone spur removed from the result of they sliced off the greater trochanter or attracted it to go and put three pins in the hip socket. Okay. Um, but what they found was glute medius was only attached by 25% of the tendon, and so they put in two screws and reattached it. 
and it was my physio pad that allowed me to stand on that leg without holding on, which it took me three weeks to be smart enough to pull out my physio pad. Um, <laughs> and, and then I could stand on that foot without holding on for 15 seconds, whereas without it, I absolutely couldn't. So it wasn't about creating instability in that case, which is why I love the physio pad for farriers. It's about creating an stability, fine stability. Um, yeah. and it's a very different function when we're working with the farriers. Yeah. 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 I yeah, agree with that. Yeah. Okay. So there's different types of stretching and so there's active stretching, passive, dynamic, and static. This horse here is doing um, an active dynamic stretch itself um, because it's actively doing it. No one is making that horse do that. It's dynamic because at the same time it's scratching itself and the legs moving. So that's kind of creating some movement through that area. And I mean, this is what we're aiming for, but most of our horses will not be getting to the hip for a while. Um, but, but, you know, this is where a horse should be able to get to and stand comfortably without having to like put four legs in all awkward positions and look like they're nearly going to fall over. So, and then, so I'll just talk a little bit about active and then I'll go into um, passive. So active, um, the horse is actively doing it. It eliminates a force from a person and its adverse effects. It can stimulate and prepare muscles for use during an exercise. Um, it can stretch the muscles and tissues to, pre to prepare them for an action. Uh, and, but it's important to understand the agonist-antagonist relationship in any stretching, which means you don't want to always stretch um, the same muscles. Say you're always stretching the hamstrings, but don't stretch the quads. And I've made this mistake many times with clients. Oh, we've got a hamstring problem. So I give them a hamstring stretch. And then I come back, I'm like, oh, the hamstrings feel great. But gee, those quads feel pretty bad now. So, you know, you've always got to remember the balance. Um, and I've also had it where I've said, oh, this leg's a problem and the owner's gone home and they've stretched that leg and I've come back, this leg feels great. They're like, oh yeah, I've been stretching it. Wow, this leg doesn't feel great anymore. So you've got to stretch both, both legs, even if you've got a problem. So these, um, some examples of active stretching, are putting your, using variable feeding positions, which again, I recommend that you get Sharon on to talk about that. Mm. Um, so do hay nets in different positions. Now people say if you feed them up high, it's a problem for their teeth. It's not. They're not doing it for 22, 24 hours a day. They're doing it for maybe half an hour. And horses naturally browse in their own environment. If given the opportunity, even our domestic horses will still browse if you give them something to browse on. Um, you would have seen the horse with the ramp. Like Sorry. That. Browsing means eating up high, eating trees. Yes. Yep, eating trees, eating bushes, all different kinds of positions. It doesn't mean go and put your hay up high now. You have to do that in a very uh, mindful way. Otherwise, you can create soreness in your horse. So that's why that's a whole different area to talk about. Um, having horses standing on ramps or eating over fences or eating over gates, you know, there's lots of different ways that they can actively be doing something where you don't have to stand there and do the stretch. The important thing is these are training the postural muscles because they can continuously do it. They can give themselves breaks. They don't have to keep doing it. They can pull some hay out and then go down to the ground. So they're actually having hydration breaks themselves in that time. 
so long as you're not forcing them to stay there. The same with poles and obstacles in the paddock, you know, that can be set up so they have to walk over things to get to their water or their feed. And that can just be an active stretch where you, you're, you don't have to do the work, but the horse is still having a benefit and they're really working on their postural muscles in those moments. Um, now this, the reason I put this image here is a couple of reasons. This is amazing that this horse is doing that. But what you will see with this horse doing this is that it is a continuum through the horse, this horse's body. When it's got its nose to its chest, there is, it's continuing all the way to its tail. I can see that the fascia is, is not getting stuck anywhere as that horse is putting it there. But this stretch in our domestic horses is not one that I want you to ever do because most of the time their postural muscles are not strong enough. The other part of it is we're always putting them in flexion. So they spend too much time in that place anyway. Um, and you can really compress um, the vertebrae and uh, they can rub up against each other. I don't believe this is happening in this horse because this horse has a completely different strength to our domestic horses. Um, and I don't believe those vertebrae are touching at all, but I do believe in our domestic horses that they are because they do not have postural stability and postural strength. And when they do this, they're only stretching their neck and they're not having a continuation through the whole body. So don't do this stretch. Do not ask your horse to take its um, mouth to its sternum. Uh, it puts too much strain on the nuchal ligament and uh, it's already under strain in most of our horses and too much strain in the ventral neck. Uh, and so it, you're not getting the benefit of what it should be like. And, and a horse like my horses in the field, if they have some flies or something itchy on their chest, they're going to do this, but they're doing it in their own way. Yeah. And, but do you notice like they often just do, do it, but right. they don't, you don't see many, like this is the only horse that I've kind of seen in the, that he's doing this in such a balanced position. Like he's standing there with his legs together. It's like, it looks so easy for him. Now my horse scratches under his pectorals because he has, um, well, he has a lot, huge loss of pectorals. He's had massive trauma in that area. So they get itchy, but when he scratches, it doesn't look easy for him. Like uh, he's scratching it because he it's irritating and the fascist pulling and whatever, but he'll have a leg out here and he'll be under there scratching it like that. Like he doesn't stand there and go under and just scratch it like it. that. And if he does, he's, everything looks hard. There's no, it's not stretching his top line like is what it should. It's, it's just flexing his neck. Um, yeah, it's great if you have deer trails in the forest with obstacles and branches and logs, and that's awesome for proprioception, especially, and postural muscles. Um, my horse lately, after being on the pads or mouth, wants to lift his head high and flex his head. I saw the entire muscles. Yeah, I've had a, a fair few horses do that as well, Belinda. Like, um, yeah, where they, they do this kind of real stretch and you see everything kind of tighten and then let go. Uh, I don't think we can replicate that with our stretching, though. Like, that's, that's like us going, oh you know, like that, like you can't replicate that kind of stretch with your stretching. So I do see a lot of horses do that, but you'll also see how their fascia along their back 
is stretching like it's amazing what's stretching when they do that so if they do it themselves completely different um scenario and i think that's the bottom line especially with that picture is that if the horse is doing it himself it's one thing it's something we should not ask our horses to do no and it's it's observing well like that horse does it so easy but if your horse is doing things themselves what does it look like how do they do it you know like i've had a horse that when i used to treat him years and years ago if he he wanted to scratch all the time he still he loves to scratch now but he would stand like literally all four legs were like as wide as they could go and and he was a Clydesdale and we were just like, how, like you're going to fall over, but he had to scratch. But now he stands in, when he scratches all the way to his hip, he is balanced and he is comfortable and you do not even think that he is going to fall over and his body bends and he crinkles in the middle. And I always <laughs> just stand back and think, Oh, that's so pretty <laughs> because there's really, I don't see that that often that a horse bends and everything looks fluid so that's years of body work and training and lots of things that have brought that horse to that position okay passive range of motion passive means we are doing it for the horse so the horse is passive we are active that i always used to get it confused but because we're active but the horse is passive and we're putting it through a range of motion Passive range of motion can be as simple as picking up your horse's leg, bending and flexing the joints and putting, and then taking it to the ground, up and down, up and down. That's amazing for just stimulating joint fluid, um, reducing joint effusion, reducing edema around areas, um, improving repair of connective tissues, stimulating the collagen production and muscle fiber alignment. So just a very simple movement. And so often that's where I start with horses uh to just get some movement happening in that area and you'll be amazed sometimes the horse will just hold it up there and then it'll take like 15 seconds and then they'll be like oh maybe i can do that oh yeah oh yeah that feels good you know so uh, um that don't, don't underestimate passive range of motion of joints and just putting them through normal range of motion and that that's dynamic if you can t keep moving something that's dynamic stretching um, and dynamic range of motion and then there's passive stretching where we hold it and so when you're holding a stretch you only take it so basically you'll take the limb you'll feel oh there's resistance and then you back off a little bit and that's where you're going to hold it not at the end of that resistance um, always back go back um, it's also important to consider if you're going to hold it at what repair if you're rehabilitating you don't want to be holding anything that's injured so that's where it's better to be dynamic with something that's that's acute or not you know even in the early stages of healing um, so it should be avoided like holding the stretch should be avoided for at least a few weeks after any kind of muscle tear and never ever force a stretch so i see see i've seen it so many times where people stretch the leg out and they you know take the toe straight away and they don't support the leg and then the horse all of a sudden pushes forward on them and drops their leg down because they can't hold it um or they pull back on them and the horse the people are like oh it's getting a really good stretch but they're pulling back saying oh like it's too far so i i you really have to look at and you'll see in some of the videos where i go too far 
um, and you'll see what my horse does um, at that point. So I will go, I will reiterate that over and over again, less is more. Yeah. And there's so many books on stretching horses where I won't like, I won't ever even mention them or carry them on my website or anything because they're they're in my opinion, they're going too far and it would be so easily misconstrued and take the horse way too far. Um, I totally agree. And uh, I really have not seen many resources where I think that people are set up adequately to stretch their horse. You know, I think so many times it's too easy for people to overstretch the horse. Um, and yeah, and, and hopefully through the videos, I can kind of help you with that today. But there is a place for holding a stretch. Definitely. If you want to lengthen a muscle, holding a stretch is the place to go, but not initially. You need to build up to that. And you need to know that you want to elongate that area and why you want to elongate that area. Um, and there's also a place where, and you'll also see in my videos that uh, there's, I'm going too fast with some of my dynamic stretches and my horse tells me pretty quick. Uh, I don't like it. I, she actually wanted me to hold, but I was trying to show dynamic stretching. So I had my own agenda and she didn't like it. Um, so but there is a place for being even more aggressive, but that's really for a therapist where you're trying to break down scar tissue and adhesions. But in saying that, I still believe they often can break down with very minimal input as well. Well, and so, this is where we kind of circle back to the beginning, whereas if you had that person, that professional that could guide you and lead you through the stretches in your rehab, you would stay in the safe zone. Yep, and say not too much, okay, you're ready to progress. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, because until you kind of really can read your horse well, which can be really hard when they're your own horse. Um, Way harder than then, else's. <laughs> oh, so much harder. Like we always expect more of our own horses and I catch myself out all the time. Like I wouldn't do that to a client's horse, right. but I'm like, you should be able to do this. Yeah. yeah. Now, so you can stretch anywhere from 6 to 30 seconds. They say after 30 seconds that there's no difference in the benefit um, and you repeat it two or three times. Um, so, again, it really depends on what your, your aim is. Um, daily initially is best, but to be honest, stretching your horse once or twice a week will have a huge influence on them. You really like it, like with us, if we do yoga once a week or Pilates or Feldenkrais or something like it's amazing how one well done session mm. can have a huge uh, long term impact without having to repeat it every single day. Okay, so we also have to remember that we often reprogram via therapies, but the correct pathways are established then, you know, through what the owner does from that point on. And I often do some reprogramming after I treat horses to make sure that uh, I've shown the horse how I now want it to move or how it now can move um, or how it now can stretch. So sometimes they don't believe you. Um, and so there's the reprogramming from that perspective, but there's also then the reprogramming from the body perspective and the reflexes and, and, and getting new tissues to establish as well. So you've got to allow that time and it depends again what you're starting with um, as to how long that would take, but at least kind of six weeks um, to get 
that correct pattern that's strong enough to hold itself and always address that whole body. So know your horse's posture, continually observe them, reassess all the time. Don't just do the stretch. Ask, how's my horse doing the stretch? Um, can it hold it better today, worse today? Is it slamming it down? Um, how are they behaving? Are they trying to bite me? Are they relaxed? Are they going to sleep? Um, have a really clear aim about why you're doing these stretches. Be consistent. So don't start doing stretches this way today and that way tomorrow. Like you can't see improvement if you keep changing all the time. So you need to have a bit of a consistent kind of plan. Like this is my aim I'm going to build up to, but I'm going to start here. And don't build every time. Build every two or three times, uh, every second or third time. Um, balance your stretches. So if you're stretching a hamstring forward, make sure you stretch it back. Um, and giving them the, the hydration breaks, but also making sure they are hydrated through, you know, their, their nutrition and that sort of thing. Always make sure you're safe. Um, turn on your own core. Don't do anything that hurts your back. Mm -hmm. um, monitor the horse. You'll notice in some of my videos, the horse is not got a halter on because uh, I know her well enough and also if she wants to leave well then that's telling me a lot of information about my stretching so I I don't generally use the halter because it gets in the way um, and sometimes it's safer for the horse to leave than than to stand on the lead rope and hurt their pole um, it's vital that the muscles are warm before you do especially any holds so you can do like passive range of motion or a bit of dynamic stretching that can actually warm a horse up. You can use that if you can't warm them up before you ride them. But if you're doing any holds of your stretches, they need to have either done a five minute trot or, you know, 10 to 15 minute active walk, not just walking along eating the grass. Um, I always start with spinal stretches with the horses, never with the limb stretches. So in terms of if I'm introducing a horse to stretching, I always will get the spine moving first rather than doing the limbs. Um, and so that's the place that you should start with your horses is seeing what their spinal range of motion is. But just be aware that once you get the spine moving, you might, it might show up limb issues uh, and that you didn't know were there before. <laughs> um, and that can be a bit um, disconcerting. Uh, always introduce yourself to the horse. I just put my hand out and see, make sure they sniff me and are kind of with me in the stretching. Um, focus on your breathing in the stretch. It really helps the horse. And always begin slowly and dynamically um, with your stretches. A bad stretch is worse than no stretch at all. I think that's worth reiterating. Yes, like you're better off. And too much. Don't do too much. Like you're better if you... Just do the spinal stretches. That's that is like on this little pony. I've I only have done spinal stretches for most of the time because um, she actually struggled with her weight bearing. So it's only now I've started doing the limb stretches that she can actually hold the weight because she's getting stronger. So in these videos that I have, this is actually the first time I've done the limb stretches with her. But for me, this is important because I think that lots of people just show you. Um, this is how you do the stretch and they show you a horse that's already stretching. It's already potentially been doing it for a long time. And so I think these videos are valuable because they actually show uh, a horse that has not done any limb stretches, hardly at all, but she's done heaps of spinal stretches. 
The first thing that I do is I teach my horse to lick for the carrot. And I can just fast forward this a little bit. So the last thing you want them to do is to bite your fingers off. I actually use very small pieces of carrot because I feel it's safer. But what I do do is I teach them to lick me or nuzzle. And I never taught her this before. I hand like this under their lip and, and I wait for them to lick me. She's very polite. She's already knows. And I give them, a, she licked and I give her the reward. If she did go to bite me, she would get a little bump on the nose until she learns that I want a lick. And that's one of the best things that I've ever taught my horse. So that keeps me safe. That's um, cool. <laughs> yeah, because I actually want to have my hand really close to their mouth because then I can really control their movement. And I want to be able to stop the movement or start the movement um, from that point. I don't, I don't want them controlling the movement because they often will overstretch for the carrot. Mm -hmm. So um, that, yeah, like I... My horses never bite me for the carrot because they know, but my horse will lick me like crazy trying to get the carrot. <laughs> um, so oh, next slide. So this is just the basic, um, yeah, have many bite marks from grabbing the carrot. Yeah, I think that's the best thing I've ever taught my horse, to be honest. Um, and they are so polite and I mean, Patch, this is my little pony Patch. She loves carrots. Like, Loves, loves, loves carrots, but she will not bite me. She's also very polite, but she will not bite me unless she's unless I've really done something wrong. Oh, hang on, this is not my first. Yeah, this one. Okay, so the first Can you hear it? Uh, yeah, it's a little quiet, but yes. Oh, you can turn it really up. Really not to bend the You will start these stretches dynamically um, rather than holding until you know that they're comfortable to hold and they will give you that indication because they will stay there looking for the carrot. So you stand beside them and I keep my hand very close to their mouth because I'm safe then and I can feel um, any resistance. And when I come down, she's beautiful and straight in her legs and if you look at her back, she should be lifting up through all of her spine and opening and flexing. And she's now able to hold for 20, 30 seconds, but we've been working on this for quite some time. Okay, so yeah, you'll see her whole back opened up um, and that's kind of what we're aiming for and that she kept her legs straight. And that's probably the hardest thing is to keep their legs straight. Um, and if you, Feel that yourself. I had my students uh, feel it and, and you kind of have your arms out and you flex like this. You can feel that it stretches. But if you bend a leg, you'll feel that it, you don't get mm. that stretch anymore. Like it actually takes the whole stretch away. So that's why we need, we need them to be standing square and then come down straight. And sometimes you've got to play a little bit with the position to find their comfortable height. And don't go straight between the legs because some horses might not actually be able to um, do that. And the other thing is that it's easy to train them to bend their leg and they think that that's actually part of the stretch because, you know, I've made that mistake with Patch, I think, a lot. I've rewarded her when her leg's been bent and so I haven't made a clear association that with the straight legs. Mm -hmm. 
So if you start that from the start, it will make your job easier. And then you can do it uh, to the side of the legs. Okay, so this one is a stretch uh, through the scapula on the opposite side. So we ask them to come down with the head straight, but to the outside of the forelimbs. So her head should stay straight, but she comes down to the outside without bending her legs. And you can see it's stretching all the way up over the scapula on that side and lifting through the back as well. Okay, so there I missed that her head wasn't quite straight because I was talking. So you, I can micromanage the carrot to straighten her head up. Um, and so you want that head to come down and stay in alignment and then you start to think about you know the influence that this is having on those fascial lines going all the way to the hind end and the lateral lines so after chin after they've got chin between the knees then um, I add in that one which is chin to the side of well it's either fetlock or knees it really depends on the horse um, and so with her now she's holding but what I did at the start She'd only come down and stay for a few seconds and then we'd come up, come down and stay. And I got her to the point where we might do that five times and then she'd get a carrot. But you've got to be careful because some horses will get really grumpy at that. You've got to figure out their carrot, like their reward time. Um, because reward I've had horses, <laughs> yeah, like I've had horses go, uh, stuff you then, I'm not, I'm giving up. I'll just not have the carrots. And for me, that says, okay, well, that was way too hard for them. And especially if they just shut down. I've had horses where they don't shut down. I just know, okay, their stretch might be only like this big and they need a reward straight away. So whereas she's done a lot now, I could do it five, ten times and not have to reward her every time. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't do that with a horse that's learning. I'd reward them for their try. So then um, lateral neck bend. This picture here is how you don't do it with the head tilted. So the ears have to stay parallel to the ground and you want to really take note of their weight bearing on the limbs. Now what you'll notice with her is she's actually standing a little bit out um, behind and she's tired. We'd been videoing for two hours at this point through in-hand, doing in-hand stuff and all different things. So you'll notice she's struggling with some of the stretches because she's actually tired. Um, so it wasn't the ideal time to stretch her, but I had to do these videos um, for some stuff. So they'll often have a stickier side and this is Patch's stickier side. She has some neck issues on this side from her, probably from her feet. So I'll ask her to come around, but I'm just going to control it a little bit more. And I always keep her ears, so there she's tilting, so I want her ears to stay parallel to the ground and start to get a curve through the spine. So she can go pretty far, but as you notice as she went further, her forelimb came off the ground a little bit. Um, her left forelimb came off the ground, so I ideally you'd want that to stay on the ground it also wavered slightly um 
But, and you also notice when she come around, she miss, misses this bit. So she kind of flexes this bit and then she skips over that bit and then she flexes that bit. So she kind of comes around and then she misses it and then she stretches that bit. So that's where you want to have that carrot close. And you'll notice I'm standing outside the horse, whereas a lot of people will have you standing inside the horse with the head's, horse's head wrapping around you. Mm -hmm. But... I find standing on the outside, I can control that position and find the, where the horse, where it's right for the horse better. And that's why I stand on the outside. Um, because I think they can cheat and do it wrong when you stand on the inside. Um, and I want to see what the outside of that neck looks like. Sometimes you'll see horse come around and do that lateral stretch and you'll see like flat spots mm -hmm. where, you know, it's not actually curving through that neck so then you've got to back that off a bit and until you know it ends up becoming a a curve as you slowly um so what you're saying is you want to progress. see an arc through the cervical vertebrae and sometimes you'll see this flat spot where there's clearly a place in the neck where you're not getting that evenness of curve yeah where you've got a restriction yep yep so you want to back so, off to make sure that you're not forcing them to maintain that restriction and then over moving somewhere else yeah because then you're just setting up the brace so you're, you're telling the horse's body that oh well that's what you have to do to do this movement right you know the fascia things okay well if i just hold this i can do this movement but we don't want it to hold all the time we want it to like all let go and flow so we have to back back right off there so when in doubt do less and look for more consistency in the stretch rather than quantity. Yeah, absolutely. It's quali quality, quality and consistency and flow over quantity. Right. So this is doing a, a lateral neck bend lower. So if you do it a different height, so you can do it towards the hip, the hock or the fetlock, you're gonna have a more stretch in different areas of the neck. So the lower you go, the lower in the neck you're going to have a stretch and you'll notice already here that she's put this leg forward um, and even at that point we're getting a bit of a stretch so ideally you want that leg back where it was square um, and to get that proper I think she did it better the other way I just had so with the neck up. you can do them at different um, heights so once you go down once you go down lower lower um, down lower in the neck to come around and keep it towards the hock or the fetlock and you can see that she's put, putting her uh, weight off that other leg so it's a little bit far and that's really starting to stretch into here the base of her neck so it's important that you set the horse up correctly from the start and I didn't set her up correctly from the start so I let her go into that with that leg forward um, and it's really important whenever you take any limb off the ground that you make sure that all the other limbs are under the body, not a little bit out the back or a little bit forward, like under, they're in alignment with the bony columns and that, that is the strongest place of support for the horse so that you're setting them up for success and you're not setting them up for failure. Um, and Patch will show you a couple of times I set her up uh, wrong and she fails. Um, now, this is your balance stretch to your chin between your knees. All right, so this stretch, so we've stretched down 
and flex the back but we also want to create some extension and some lengthening in the back so uh, with this one again you keep the carrot nice and close to the mouth and you want the legs square and you don't want them to step forward and you want to see so if you watch her hind end now see that movement there but before she steps forward so I want to see her whole spine lengthening all the way to her tail without her stepping forward there, except she stepped forward at the end so there you see at the end where I asked for a bit more and she had to step forward so but if I keep it within the range, I can actually get her to lengthen and go back and lengthen and go back. And so that's, you know, working a lot in that simple thing. Like it's, it's working thoracic sling as well. Um, and all of those fascial connections, all like ventral dorsal um, lines. So that's uh, really beneficial, but you're, she makes it look a bit easy at the start there and you might have to actually do it over a gate or, or something so she knows that if I point at her chest, she has to lift her thoracic sling. So I can easily keep her staying there. So she already knows that, um, that aid. And so that helped me when I taught her that stretch because I could just point at her chest and she would stay. But if your horse doesn't have thoracic freedom, you'll find that stretch really difficult because as soon as it pulls to the neck, they'll step forward. Um, so you might have to work on other things before you get to that point. Um, now this one's just looking at rotation through C1, C2. Now uh, I'm going to mute myself because I say the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, oh, so Pat hadn't done this for a while and this was been her, one of her hardest stretches because she was so fixed. And so you'll see she pulls back a bit I don't want them to pull back. I want them to come out and stay out there and rotate. And she, she rotates a lot easier to the left than she does to the right. So you'll see on the right, she pulls back. Um, recently, I've got to continue to do this and she's doing it beautifully without pulling back now. Um, but the nuchal ligament can get stuck on one side and actually prevent them from rotating back, especially if it's very tight from um, a lot of flexion. And that's why this is really important for horses that have been held in flexion. But if it gets stuck and you're telling them to rotate the back, they sometimes they just can't physically do it. And she physically could not do it from left to right um, because she'd learned to go in a fixed frame. So now she knows how to go in her own carriage and that's all softened up. She can now do it. So if your horse is having trouble, don't force it. You need to find the position where they can do it easily. And it's something you need to continue working on, but find their kind of comfortable area with it. Um, so question, I find that my horse is really sore, suspected C6, C7. I wouldn't be able to get his head laterally in the right position with the carrot stretch as he needs more support. I've switched having his head on my shoulder and moving my body around to the side only works with the lateral ones. I could probably do other stretches without support. Okay, but what you're doing with support is different to a stretch. So by supporting him, you're allowing release of the muscles. And so you might find that if you do that first, you could then ask for a little stretch after that to gradually progress it. Um, so, but by taking his head, you're 
you're taking that weight and you're taking the weight off the muscles. So you're going to get some stretch into the outside, but you're also getting a lot of release because you're taking that weight for him. So it's, it's not going, it's not doing the exact same thing. It's different. So to then work with getting him to stretch, I would ask for less. So you might only be able to get him 10 degrees around. And, um, and I just start with that. And I do it after you've done that, after you've let him do that. Um, so support first and then dynamic stretch. And make sure he's really warm. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, a horse that's cold with problems will find it hard and you never want to push a horse with a suspect neck problem because you will only make them sore. Yeah. Um, you've got a couple of questions on the Q&A. Uh, okay, so don't include the pectoral carrot stretch in the repertoire. I've been doing it with my horses for a year. Have I ruined my horse? I'm sure you haven't ruined your horse. And it really depends how you've been doing it. And the um, what you want to have a look at is if you do it again, you want to have a look, am I only flexing the neck? If you are only flexing the neck, then you're not getting the full benefit from that stretch. You want to see that if you're doing it, you're actually, it's going along the whole back. Um, and if you've been doing it for years, you've probably elongated the nuchal ligament now anyway. So you, you're probably not, um, having as much problems with that because the problem is when people do it and it's so, so tight that they're just overstretching it. And so, uh, if you've been doing it for years, you probably don't have the tightness problem, but just have a look next time that you do it. Do you have a continuation through the body or are you only getting neck flexion? Um, that would be my advice there. I'm curious what type of stretch it is when you are picking out hind feet and gently hint to the horse that they can stretch the leg out behind and they thrust the leg out behind, stretching them back. The stretch is initiated by the person, but the horse decides to do the stretch and does it unaided. Yeah, I guess you've you've um, instigated an active stretch. So you've just kind of said, oh, do you want to do this? And then the horse's body's like, yeah, actually, that feels really good. So, um, yeah, and I think that's a good sign when horses do that. To me, anyway, it's a good, a good sign, unless they're doing it all the time and over-stretching, then, like, if they continuously do a certain stretch, there could be a problem that they're trying to relieve. Um, but you know, if you if you ask a horse, "Oh, do you want to stretch their legs forward?" and they and they just do it, like they're probably free and comfortable to do it. They're not going to do it if it feels uncomfortable. Um, that's part of their part of their protective mechanisms. But context is so important in terms of you know that does it look comfortable is it smooth is it continuous is it easy um and so it's really hard when people ask those kind of questions because you don't know the context yeah exactly and you have to see it yeah yep. exactly and it could be good or it could be bad depending right. on it depends. every every horse is different even every day can be different yeah you know so what you'll notice here now i'm going into the forelimb stretches is that Patch's hind legs are too far out behind her because she's tired. And this is not, uh, you know, an ideal position. It's telling me that she's tired. The good thing is this front leg, though, is directly under her body. So that's good. Um, but, yeah, her back legs are hanging out behind. Um, and you'll see, 
you'll see that she's tired. Okay, so I'm going to show you some, di some dynamic stretches of the forelimb and um, how you'd go about that. So this can be used as a warm-up exercise or when your horse is getting used to stretching. So you will ask them to pick up the leg and support under the knee and the fetlock. And then you just gently want to take it into the range of motion without them pushing their weight onto you. And you'll find the rhythm that suits. What you can see there is you can see her fascia going all the way back. And that's what you want to see. Whereas a lot of horses, you'll only see the falling moving and not this connection going through the whole fascia. Your horse, but you're not kind of going, going all the way up here. 10 seconds. Oh, yeah. You can see it in her tail. And I keep putting the leg back. You can see it in her hind foot. And you can see each time I'm getting a little bit further in the stretch. And then when you make sure that you place the limb down, don't just... Okay, so that was quite a... <laughs> hey. She's so good. Oh, she, yeah, she's a dream pony. Um, so you could see she was very comfortable with that. She was very happy with that. I was doing that at a good speed. Um, I increased her range of motion through doing that and you can see I was holding it for not holding it out for maybe uh, two seconds um, but you could see how that was really helping her if I had have held that out from the start she would have just either went back or just dropped her leg on me so it would have been too much for her um, so Then this one, we're stretching. So that one was stretching all the muscles down. Well, you could see it was stretching all the way to the back foot, actually. But um, this one is stretching through the brachiocephalicus, through the um, cranial aspect, biceps brachii here, and through the front of the leg. Uh, I was going to say, also, don't underestimate when you're doing these stretches, all of these other limbs are doing isometric contractions. They are stabilizing. That is postural muscles. So at the same time as I'm stretching a leg, I'm also stay promoting postural stabilization in all of the other legs. My aim is that I can pick up one of the front legs and go through all of the stretches with little breaks holding the leg up while holding the leg up the whole time, you know, because I'm then getting isometric um, contractions in the other leg and then put it down and then go through, do it all again and then put it down. So I'm not just thinking about the leg I'm stretching, I'm thinking about the stabilizing legs as well, which is just as, or if not more beneficial okay. than the stretch that's itself. Really huge to think about it that way. Yeah, and that's why I'm always watching what the other legs do. Like you can see here, I've got her in a much better position. Her hind legs are supporting her properly. Her front leg is supporting her properly. And she will, I've set her up better for this stretch or she set herself up better for this stretch. Um, and therefore I'm benefiting these hind limbs. Whereas before when they were out the back, I'm not benefiting them mm -hmm. at the same time. They're not in a good position. I'm training the wrong brace. Oh crap, I've got a meeting to go to. Uh oh. <laughs> Uh, and it's a really important meeting. Okay, so this is the last one and then we're done. Yep.
So when you're asking them to stretch, make sure that they're standing in a balanced position themselves. Give them that time. And then we're doing a stretch of the protraction line. So we'll pick up the limb, make sure the knee is relaxed. And just gently bring it to where you feel um, the tension and hold. So this one I'm doing a holding stretch. Show you the difference. And then come put the foot back down. And, but I only held it for a few seconds. Yeah, so yeah. That's, yeah. that's to show you know, where you'd start with the hold. Um, whereas before I was showing you dynamic. So that's probably is a, I mean, it's been two hours, so. I know, for a long time. you have been so generous with your time and, and um, why don't you just stop the screen share and we'll just wrap this up really quickly. And yeah. tell, what I want to tell you is you have been the easiest guest I've ever had. Not oh, only thank do you, you understand how to use Zoom, you know how to manage questions and chat and, and <laughs> I've just been able to sit back and really absorb the information, which is so nice because usually I'm managing six different things and running the slideshow at the same time. So you yeah. are for just uh, thank you. fabulous. And I, all my practice with my students every day. <laughs> yeah, but it's so generous to you. I don't want to keep you. I know you have a meeting and um, thank you again. And you can just leave and I'll wrap it up. It'll take me two seconds. But yeah, okay. I'm happy to answer any questions if like, if you send them through to me or put them somewhere, Wendy, and I can answer Great. them and we can finish this off at some point. Yeah, we if, can do this again. If you want to. So interesting. And I, and um. And thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and I really, really appreciate your time. It's really. Yeah, no, knowledge. you're welcome. And thanks for everyone for joining us. It's yeah, been really great. Great. Um, thank you everyone for joining the webinar. Just remember that you can see this and all of the, sh the webinars that I've been doing on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. Um, you can also always sign up for all of the webinars by going to the surefootequine.com website, click on the calendar, a window will pop up, click on that window and the registration block is right there. Um, tomorrow my guest is Equisoma and we're going to talk about thoracic spine. Uh, it's going to be really fascinating and they're all set to do that. And so thank you everybody for joining me and thank you again, Raquel. It's been thank such Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You're so good. Thanks, okay. Wendy. See you everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks.